Tonight, if you turn your Bibles to, again to Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is now going to embark on a, a series of messages here in the Sermon on the Mount, and they are all linked to a common thread, and that thread is this, that God looks at the heart. Man has a tendency to look at the outside, at the externals, but God sees past all the external things and past all of our jockeying and positioning and our words and our wordsmithing and the things that we kind of throw out there trying to get people convinced that uh, we live one way or we live another way. And God sees right through all that stuff. He sees us as we truly are, as we really are. And when it boils down to it, there are people who are very, very, very outwardly appearing to be one way, and yet they're actually not that way at all. And there are people who are outwardly seeming to be all together. And they not only are not all together, they're actually living a lie. And so Jesus begins to now expound on what's already been said. And so he takes the Beatitudes. He reminds us that we need to be uh, forgivers. He, he puts these things into perspective for us in a way that's very concise. We need to forgive men uh, their trespasses as, as we ourselves have been forgiven. And so he, he's now going to go on and remind us of all of these individual instances where we're supposed to be salt, we're supposed to be light. Um, he's already fulfilled the law. And so you can get hung up so much in the works of being salt and being light, and you can get hung up in trying to work out the law yourself. And so that nobody misunderstands the content of the message. Jesus is now going to go on. He's going to talk about six very specific sins. There were two boys that had discovered a new word to use when they were upset with each other. Their mother was out with them shopping one afternoon, and suddenly they became angry. They were fighting over the same thing in the store, and the first one said, I hate you. And the second one looked right at him, and he said, well, I hate you. And they yelled back and forth at each other several more times the same insult. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And Mom looked at him and said, that's not very nice. And I'm certainly not going to take two little boys who hate each other to McDonald's for lunch. The five-year-old quickly backed down and said, well, I don't really hate you, I suppose. But his younger brother, with very clear three-year-old logic, responded, I still hate you, I'm not hungry. <laughs> it's a hard issue, isn't it? You can even say the right words. You can actually be correct in your facts. You can, that little three-year-old had it pretty well nailed the way the world works, doesn't he? Well, just say the right thing. I'll speak what needs to be spoken so I get what I want. 
And the Lord Jesus looks right past all that stuff. We are, by nature, self-centered. And so tonight, the heart of a murderer. Let's pray. Father, we just come tonight and the end of this week, the beginning of another as we tomorrow morning will rise up and most of us head off to some place of employment, something that we do during the week to provide for our families. God, we pray that you'd strengthen us by the power of your word in this place. God, thank you for the high school worship team, Lord, just this amazing group of young people. Lord, just so blessed to be in your presence with them. And pray now as we study your word that you would just again instruct us. Lord, we we pray to hear your voice tonight. Jesus, you authored these words, and so we simply ask you to speak them back to us now, in this day and this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5, verse 21. Now you have heard, Jesus uses another Hebrew idiom. This is something that was very common. We still say it today. And we say it like this. Well, people used to say. It used to be like. Back in the old days. We use the same types of idioms. But this is a very Hebraic one. You've heard that it was said of those of old. And it's referring back to the rabbis. As they codified the Talmud. As they wrote down, in essence, a commentary on first the Torah, the first five books, and then the Tanakh, most of what we would call the Old Testament, as they codified those things and began to expound on it, how to live these things out, what we would actually call a commentary, a very liberal commentary. By the time they got done authoring that commentary, you had no idea what God wanted of you. It became so very, very, very complex and so unbelievably impossible that it was impossible before, it was doubly impossible now. And so the Lord Jesus is referring to that, and he's going to actually use the original decalogue, deca meaning ten, log meaning word, the the original ten words, the ten things that were spoken, we know them as the ten commands, he's going to use the decalogue to express now several things about human nature and why it's so important that when we finish up thinking about the law that he's fulfilled it, he's now going to go on to remind us that the issue never really was the law. The issue was the human heart. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Some translations have there in Exodus chapter 20, the word kill, and that is an improper translation of the original intent. Both the Hebrews and the Greeks use several words for the taking of human life. And they very much differentiated between that which was manslaughter, lawful killing, war, what we would call police work. There's, there's a just reason for taking someone's life. It should be very, very rare. But here Jesus makes the proper announcement. He says, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. If God hasn't changed, if his commandments are still the same, if Jesus said 
that he came to fulfill and not one yote, not one tittle would be removed from the law, then certainly you shall not murder still stands. Amen? Fairly clear. And it was said by those of old, the rabbis had expounded on this, and it had gotten so complex that they talked about the price of certain people's deaths. Heathens were okay. People with whom you disagreed and you could get justification from several witnesses. You see, they had changed it from the original intent, and that was to take human life for selfish gain. You'd be in danger of judgment. But I want you to notice what he goes on now to say. So important that we get this as we begin these next six studies. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause, and notice the phrase, without cause, there is a time to be angry. You know, somebody steals your car, you don't have to go, yay, I'm so happy. Thank you for stealing my car. It's okay to have a little bit of angst going on there. It's not their car. They took it. It belonged to you. You know, all those kind of... It's okay to be a little bit angry. There's a proper place. God himself actually gets angry, doesn't he? But you're not supposed to sin. And so the differentiation is here, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, in other words, there is no reason for you to actually be angry. You shouldn't have that feeling. It's not one of those things that should cause that anger to well up inside of you to where you might say something or do something. Shall be danger in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which literally means empty or empty-headed, worthless. It actually comes from a, uh, the, the original word here, at least in the Greek language, would have meant to spit on. Whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. In other words, if you were to speak things incorrectly and you were a Hebrew, uh, you would be brought to the Sanhedrin if it was really serious. If not, you'd be brought to the local council with the rabbi and the elders would gather together and they would consider that thing. And so it says, look, whoever says to his brother, you empty-headed person. I spit on you. You need a drug to the council. But then he goes on to say something that's pretty crazy. Sounds a little bit out of character. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Aren't those two things pretty much the same? And that, my friends, is exactly the point. They are the same. And that's the problem that we have as human beings. We like to justify. We like to look at the things that we do, the things that we say. We like to take our little position in the world, and it matters to us, and then we pronounce our situational ethics upon it, our existential philosophy upon it, and we say, well, given my circumstance and my situation... That was a perfectly correct response. And so Jesus is basically saying here, look, what's the difference? Because we're human beings. He's speaking to these guys that, you know, 
They, they weren't exactly the most brilliant of, the, of, of, of those on earth. Peter was forever saying things that he lived long enough to forget, usually within the same day. Some of the disciples didn't speak up when they should. And therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and notice what he goes on now to say. He says, basically, you guys sit there and bag on each other, say all kinds of mean things to each other. What's the difference whether you go to the council or whether it's, it's an issue of salvation in that sense? The problem's internal. It's your heart that's messed up. It isn't whether you differentiate between, you know, really something bad or something not quite so bad that you'd only have to go to the council. That's not for you to decide. God is judge. And therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and now he, he shifts gears and he says, look, if you were to bring this thing into God's house, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, nobody gets off the hook in God's house. I had a few very interesting conversations today. Nobody gets off the hook in God's house. They were all good, by the way. But there were some people that were not happy about not getting off the hook in God's house. That's okay. None of us get off the hook in God's house. The pastor's doing his job is going to teach the word cover to cover. And every once in a while, we're going to run across, well, I kind of need to change my tune on that song. I'm off key. If you go to God's house and you remember that you have a problem with your brother, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. And first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Isn't it crazy how we try and blow off the internal things? As long as nobody notices, as long as we can kind of hide our sin, as long as, well, I just said raka to him. I just called him a dumb head. Called him a fool. That has a different connotation in our culture. Depends on how you say it. It can be something fairly derogatory. Or it can be a word kind of almost a friendship. Yo, fool. Jesus is saying, look, it's your heart that's the issue. Agree with your adversary quickly. You realize what that says? In other words, make peace with the person with whom you don't have peace. Agree with your adversary quickly. In other words, come to terms with whatever it is that's divided you. Because it's not okay with God. While you're on the way with him, unless your adversary deliver you to the judge. You see, now he goes on to say, look, this whole thing can blow up and get completely out of whack depending on how your heart is. And probably there's very few people in here, if any, who have not been engaged in some type of conversation that led to a heated argument, that led to an altercation, maybe even led to physical violence, that maybe even led to somebody going to the hospital, that didn't end up someplace that you never thought it would go. Why? Because the heart is deceitful, it's desperately wicked, and who can know it? And we're selfish. 
And so Jesus is saying, look, this whole thing of calling each other names, that's just the outpouring of the internal problem. Your adversary is going to deliver you to the judge. The judge will hand you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you into prison. And assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. He's basically now turned it to a spiritual analogy. He says, look, I'm using this example because I need to keep it simple. He used that KISS principle. Keep it simple because we're not too smart. Need to make sure he can get it. So here's the deal. You got an argument that's going on with your friends. It turns into a little playground banter. Yeah, well, your mom wears army boots. Oh, really? Well, nanny, you know, I mean, it's almost that silly. Dumb head. The Lord is saying, look, it's not a huge leap. It's not a huge leap from there to you pulling out a nine and capping a few rounds in that guy. That's actually how it starts, isn't it? I don't believe there are very many people who wake up in the morning and go, man, I think I'm just going to go shoot somebody. Hey, Mom, where's the gun? Got to go shoot somebody. Just can't wait. Got a new gun yesterday. Boy, it'd be nice to shoot somebody. That's not what happens. There's somebody in somebody's turf. There's somebody who talked to somebody's girlfriend. There's somebody who said a bad day, waved some appendage out a window. It is nuts what happens on the freeways here. Amen? That's crazy. I have, I have had people drive for miles behind me with the, with the same single appendage out the window. It wasn't, they're, they're, you know, they're signaling someone else their displeasure. And they're willing to kill half a jillion people on the freeway, driving like absolute maniacs because somebody moved over into their lane by six inches. And so for the next 15 minutes, there's this altercation. Yeah, well, you, you know, and it's just like, and after a while, you're going, how do you get from that place to this place? It's a hard issue. There's anger in here, and anger in here will turn to violence out here. So if the heart isn't checked, if the heart's not redeemed, if you don't solve the heart problem, then you're going to have the external problems. It's a heart problem. There are five basic principles that are going to be summarizing these next few studies as we get down to verse 48 eventually. The first principle of which is that the spirit of the law is more important than the letter. You see, we need to understand that we all have a problem. None of us can keep the law. Amen? We can't. That's just a fact. You're not keeping the law. You get through the Ten Commandments, maybe for 15 minutes or so, and then all of a sudden you've got something that comes up in your life and you're actually paying homage or worship to it. We're, we're in the football season. We're in the baseball season. Basketball season is going to start. I can't tell you how many times you, you're, you're watching people and they're, 
It's, you know, $375 to sit in the nosebleed section. And then they're going to haggle over it with some other guy about their, you know, hey, dude, your head's in my way. Well, you spent $375 to sit up here next to the rafters. What's wrong with you? It's, it's, a, it's an internal problem. And so the spirit of that law is more important than the letter. The law wasn't given as a mechanical set of rules by which men were supposed to live their lives so that they'd have sufficient power within the rules themselves to control outward living. It doesn't work that way. Never has, never will. Didn't work for the Hebrews. You ever thought how crazy it was to be that, that initial group of Hebrew settlers after they crossed the Red Sea, they're over in the Sinai, they're wandering around in one of the hottest, driest deserts in the world, and God gives them ten rules and they can't keep those. Ten, that's it. We got more rules governing whether you can give your children some type of Tylenol or Advil at school today than, than they did controlling their entire existence in the wilderness. And, and they, they couldn't keep the Ten Commandments. God gave it as a guide to keep check on their inward character, the things that were of their heart. Because you know what? People died in the wilderness. People worshipped other things. How long did it take them? They were building another God before Moses got down from the mountain, weren't they? He's got the Ten Commandments in his hand. He's coming down the mountain. He's got the stone tablets. He gets down there, and there's Aaron. And he's leading the people in idol worship. Well, you were gone 40 days. Besides that, the earrings leapt off of our ears and into the fire they turned into a golden calf, and that's how it happened. Stone straight up lied right to his face. He comes, no wonder he broke the tablets, amen? He's like, this is, this is hopeless. There's no way we're keeping these. Not going to happen. It's because it was an internal thing. The second principle is the law is it, it's positive as well as negative. You see, the law is positive on one side, it's negative on the other. And it has to be that way. If there's no negative side to it, then it has no teeth. If it's only something that's positive, then all it does is encourage you to not do something. It doesn't give you the right reason for not doing it. So the purpose is not to just prevent those inner things and the outward things. It's to promote inner and outward righteousness. I want to be righteous both ways. If my heart's right, then my hands will follow. It's a three-step process. We take things into our mind, our head. It moves to our heart and then to our hands. We think about it, we meditate on it, then we do it. A third principle. And this is a simple one. The law is not an end unto itself. It has a deeper purpose. It's supposed to drive us to the cross. It's supposed to bring us to the Lord. It, it's a supreme purpose, if you want to look at it that way, is actually to glorify God in our lives. And a fourth purpose is that when you think about this, there's only one righteous judge in all of the universe. How many people in here, and you can raise your hand, have wrongly judged someone or something in their life? Yeah. I mean, we're not really all that good at that, are we? 
you judge someone's motivation, maybe you take a word or two out of context, you see a situation and you think you know why somebody did what they did, and you don't have a clue. And you go off on some tangent, how many stories have people told about someone else's life, the, the reason that they're doing something, well, I knew his aunt's uncle's mother's cousin was a liar, so he's a liar too. We do that, don't we? It's okay, you can be honest because human beings do those kind of things. I'm not saying it's right, by the way, I need to be very clear on that. But the fact of the matter is, there's only one righteous judge. That means only God alone is able to look at the human heart and know exactly why you did what you did. Or why someone else did what they did. He not only knows the motivation, but he knows the action. He also knows the consequences. And so we need to stop playing God. And agree with what the Lord has said about our condition. There's a fifth principle, and this is the final one. Every human being is commanded to live up to a perfect, divine set of standards. You realize that, right? That's why Jesus said that he hadn't come to erase even one yacht, one tittle. You have been commanded to live up to an absolutely perfect standard. Here's the good news. He's given you the grace of the cross to enable that. Because without it, you're not going to. And neither am I. And so what God demands, He also gives you the power to do. And so here, this story of anger that, that seeps into the life of a person. You, you, you see, what exists in our lives in that sense exists first in our heart. If it doesn't exist in your heart, I hate to tell you this, it probably doesn't exist at all. Because people just simply do things because it seems right at the time. We call that situational ethics, if you want to look at it that way. In other words, the situation is this, and so my options are A, B, C, and D, and, and because of all the circumstances, I pick C. In other words, the situation determines the outcome. God doesn't function that way. He actually has a perfect reason for absolutely everything that he either allows or causes in the entire universe every nanosecond of every day. And so from his perspective, there is an absolute right way to handle everything. And so good is supposed to come from him. When Jesus said in our last study that not one yote or tittle would pass away, he was really disagreeing with what the Old Testament had already said. Solomon said it this way in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39. Then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. David's last words to, to his father Solomon much along the same lines in First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. As for you, excuse me, David speaking to Solomon. As for you, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands the intent of the thoughts. And so when you think about thou shalt not murder and, and being angry with someone, you can see how if the anger is there in the thought, it's not that big of a leap 
for it to become action. Things escalate. Satan's an opportunist, isn't he? For those of you that are married, how many disagreements have you had with your spouse that when you look back on it after it's over, you go, why in the world were we even arguing about that? You ever thought of that? That's because the enemy twists those things. And the heart is deceitful. The heart is wicked. We're selfish. And so not being able to perfectly judge, we misread the circumstance or the situation, maybe the words themselves. Perhaps they should have been said kinder. Maybe they could have been phrased in a different way. But the fact of the matter is, we misunderstand many things. Hanani, the seer of Israel, reminded King Asa in Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and throw throughout the world, throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Solomon, as he wrote in Proverbs chapter 16, for all the ways of the man are clean in his own sight. For we are told, but the Lord weighs the motives. Jeremiah 70, I, the Lord, search the hearts and test the mind and give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. John even wrote the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, for I am he who searches the hearts and the minds and will give to each one according to his deeds. By the time the Apostle Paul wrote on this subject, he said, it's not, uh, I'm not acquitted, he said in 1 Corinthians 4, but the one who examines me is the Lord. And therefore I do not go on passing judgment before the time, but I wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are hidden, the things that are in darkness, and disclose the motives of the hearts of men. You, you see, we need heart check like it or not what's on the inside eventually comes to the outside and so Jesus is now going to go on and give us some thoughts on murder some thoughts on sexual sin some thoughts on divorce some thoughts on speaking the truth some thoughts on retaliation and some thoughts on loving each other and so he begins with two of the ten commandments then he gives two of the general laws of Moses and finally gives two broad principles of love and mercy and when you look at them they go from social and individual preservation to social relationships and their wider relationship with virtually everyone in the world so he goes from the individual to our entire world when he speaks these things he says look you guys need to change your hearts Murder and adultery, are, they're individual. That, you want to take away individual freedom, there's no better way than to take away an individual's freedom than to kill them, amen? You talk about individual freedoms that we're supposed to have, that's the quickest way to end individual freedom is to take someone's life. You talk about social preservation, what about preser- preserving the family unit? That is the number one, it's the smallest component of all human society is the human family. If you don't believe that, read your Bible. In the beginning, there were two people, Adam and Eve. They had a couple of sons, Cain and Abel. Murder crept in. The first sin was murder, in that sense, in a family. It's hatred, boiled over. Hatred would be so powerful. When you think about these things, there's a woman who's testifying about a transformation that occurred in her life when she gave her life to the Lord and it resulted in uh, just a, a great relationship. And she said, 
uh, when she was asked, she says, you know, I'm so glad I, I, I went to church that I got this, this experience. I have an uncle I used to hate so much that I vowed to never go to his funeral. But now I'd be happy to go any day. <laughs> kind of misses the point, doesn't it? Probably not many of you know why, why the, the British actually drive on the, drive on the left. There's actually a reason for it. The Pope came to Paris during the reign of Napoleon and to uh, keep traffic moving, it was decreed that the Pope, during the Pope's visit that the Parisians would drive on the right-hand side, leaving the left open and clear for the Pope to travel around the city. Napoleon later made that the law of the land. The British so hated the French that they chose the other side of the road. True that. That's part of the reasoning behind it. Had to do with you know drivers' doors and some other things, but that was one of the reasons. So hatred can be very powerful. And so here in this case, you got some people who just hate each other. They don't like each other. Keep saying mean things to each other. And so what's the Lord getting at? That murder, like every other sin, is first a heart issue. The first crime, if you will, was actually the crime of murder. It's there in Genesis chapter 4, and it came about that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. Can you imagine? And this was all over a sacrifice. Cain's sacrifice was beautiful. Abel's sacrifice was bloody. Cain's sacrifice looked like it was just I mean, how could God not love this beautiful, look like it came from flowers, are us? You know, it's this wonderful arrangement, and it has all kinds of grains and leafy things in it. It's pretty. And, and, and here comes Abel, and, and all he's got is a dead animal. And God accepts the blood. And of course, because of the shedding of the blood, there was remission of sin, and so it was, of course, an acceptable sacrifice. But the outside, it looks like God had, had disrespected that beautiful thing that Cain had brought in. And since that day, murder has been a constant part of human society. But it doesn't begin that way. It didn't begin that way with Cain and Abel. It began with flower arranging and farming, didn't it? It began with dissatisfaction. It began with disrespect. It began with dismissive words. And so it is for us. We have a problem with those things. And we need to recognize that we have a problem with those things. If you look over the history of what's going on in our country, and most of you know if you study any of these things, you realize it takes a long time to compile data and turn them into these massive reports that the government puts out. But the last one, which came out in 2010, here in the United States of America, there were an average of 16,137 known murders that happen every year. That's one every 32 minutes, if you're good at math. That's the known ones. Be a whole bunch more if you took in the unknown ones, the people that just simply disappear. Their, their lives forfeited because they didn't matter. They become so commonplace that unless... It's somebody who's important that gets affected. They don't even make the front page of the news anymore. Not that there actually is a front page. 
many of us in this room grew up in a day and time when you said front page, it was actually literally the front page of the newspaper. Now it's like the first 13 seconds after the events posted on the internet with live video feed. A murder is so commonplace in our, in our world that it doesn't even cause people to think a second thought anymore. How many people die needlessly? If you add in suicide, which by the way really can be looked at as self-murder, that's someone despising their own self or maybe hating someone else who's going to be left behind so much that they would take their own life. It's self-murder. By the way, that's the 12th leading cause of death in the United States of America, suicide. More people died of suicide than car accidents in 2010. It's pretty shocking. 2010, the total number of, of deaths in the United States was 38,364 by those two things. If you added in abortion, it's almost 2 million. That's a lot of death. That's a lot of self. And so Jesus says to that in the first of these illustrations, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. You see, he's referring back to those things that have been said before. And actually in Genesis chapter 9, whoever sheds a man's blood by his blood, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of man he was made, the image of God. You see, murder is purely selfish. It's us responding to that hatred that's already there. And it's really what, what is said about Satan himself there in John chapter 8, verse 44. It says, you're of your father the devil speaking. Jesus is, is again reminding the world of these truths. For the desires of your father you want to do, for he was a murderer from the beginning. It was he who was behind Cain. He said, look, you know, just take him out, then you can have all the good stuff. You see, people still to this day have an internal problem. Sin is an act, and you, you need to see this. Sin is an act of the human will, because sin is against God. So there has to be a cognizant choice that we make to choose wrongly, to choose incorrectly. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, look, it's not about you calling your brother dumbhead. It's, it's not about saying, look, you fool. It's not you disrespecting somebody. It's the, the reason you're saying those things is because there's a murderous heart that dwells within you. You were conceived. You were born, in essence, that way. In that sense, God hates hatred. Murderers, you, you find their names throughout Scripture. Cain, Lamech, Pharaoh, Abimelech, Joab, the Amalekites. David was a murderer. Absalom, Jezebel, Jehu. That was all kinds of them. So it's been a problem for a while. The New Testament, you have Herod and Judas. The, high, the Jewish high priests were murderers. Barabbas, Herodias, her daughter, several others. 
So the history of mankind, the history of our walk is this. To one degree or another, all of us have the capacity to be a murderer. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? We have within us the capacity to take things that start out as some little seed of the flesh, some little thing that's not of God, and we dwell on it, and we stew on it, and we act on it, and we talk it out, and we go talk to somebody else about that thing, and before you know it, it explodes. You know the most common defense that's used in, a murder, in murder trials? I didn't intend to kill him. It's the most common defense. It was an act of rage. It was an act of passion. I never thought it would get to this. I only wanted to wound him. Didn't mean to kill him. Scripture says exactly the opposite. That actually without the work of the Holy Spirit, mankind is murderous. Because we're innately murderers internally. And unless you deal with that problem, it will eventually come out. There are three basic areas of our Christian walk. There's ourselves, there's the worship that we had towards, towards God, and then there's our relationship to other people. The Bible addresses all three areas. The first effect of these words is to shatter the illusion that we're self-righteous. Most people think just like the Pharisees thought in this passage. Well, you know, I'm not a murderer. You ever thought about those people that you really, 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 really hate? I can think back in times that in my own life, you know, given the, the wrong circumstance, the wrong situation, and the amount of hatred that I carried around in my heart for my own parents at times. I can honestly tell you if the right situation had, had come up, there's a possibility. Because the heart is deceitful and it's desperately wicked. Back in the 1930s, back when the crime, the mob controlled most of the East Coast. The spring of 1931, one of the most notorious criminals of that day was Two-Gun Crowley. He'd brutally murdered about a dozen people, including at least one policeman, <clears throat> probably three. And when he finally was captured in his girlfriend's apartment, he later died from that same capture attempt. There was a gun battle. Found inside of his jacket was a note under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do no harm to anybody. That is exactly how most people see themselves. And yet very often our actions say something completely different. Ah, I've done some bad things, but I'm not a bad person. How many times have you heard that? Well, I'm not a bad person. Well, actually, Scripture says that we're all bad persons. Every last one of us. And unless our hearts are redeemed, unless we get a new heart, a heart that's not stone, but a heart that's flesh, unless we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, there's no telling what we might do. 
Sociologists, psychologists, psychiatrists all tell you the same thing. And hatred brings a person closer to murder than does any other emotion. Anger is simply an extension of that. And anger leads to hatred. And hatred leads to murder. And so those things are linked. And in essence, they begin to eat away at the internal person. And as a, as a Christian, we have the answer to that because it changes the internal person. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, look, the sin of anger and the sin of hatred and the sin of evil speaking and the sin of thievery and the sin of adultery, all these sins have a common issue. It's dealt with at the heart, you can deal with it. If it's not dealt with at the heart, then you remain at risk all of your life. And so Jesus puts it back on us and he simply closes this, this little mini message by saying, look, if your brother has something against you, if there's something that could be the seed of hatred, check this out. If there's something in your life that could be the seed of that thing that you might hang on to, and eventually it would go from anger to hatred, if, there, if there's something that's between you and your brother, don't go into church and act like everything's okay and praise the Lord and say your platitudes and, yeah, bro, you know, God's just awesome says go get straight with God because the problem is your heart it's not that you don't go to church enough you hear what I just said the problem is the human heart it's not that you haven't gone to church enough it's not that you don't have a big enough Bible it's not that you don't have enough bumper stickers on your car it, it isn't that you haven't volunteered for enough service projects it's none of those things the problem is your heart and you need to square away your heart because those little seeds of things will sit there and fester and they will grow and they get a little bit bigger each day and before you know it you've got a real problem on your hands true worship it doesn't come from better music can I just tell you that true worship does not come from better music it comes from better hearts it flows out of our heart towards God. It's not something that somebody gives you something. You're giving something to God. The worship team is first worshipers. They're leading us in giving our worship to God. They're not giving you a performance. Worship comes from you to God. So what Jesus is saying, look, don't come in with your hatred. And he could have, honestly, he could have said, don't come in with your bitterness. Don't come in with your unforgiveness. Don't come in with your little personal things that you got going on in your life. You go get those things squared away and then come praise me. Because in your heart's right. I can see that stuff, Jeff. I can see the junk that's in your heart. I can see the gunk. You know, so many of those silly motor products that are available, you know, and they, they always show you the, you know, the after effects. Look, if you pour a quart of this inside your engine block, pretty soon your engine, you could eat off of it. You know, and it makes this fantastic claim that your oil, you know, you could pour it into a glass and suck it back and you'd be fine. That's the human heart, man. Our engines are gunked up. There's all kinds of carbon built up in there. There's the effects of that internal combustion, those things going on that are exploding in your life every day, in my life every day. And those things leave residue. 
And so what the Lord's saying, look, go get it squared away. You want to have better relationships, be a better worshiper. You want to get rid of hatred, be a better worshiper of the Lord. Your worship will improve every aspect of your life. Matter of fact, other people's worship might be improved by you staying away until your heart's right. I'm not saying that's necessarily what you should do, but there are times, man, we, we really shouldn't be around other human beings, amen? If you're coming in and you see that person that's kind of got, you got something going on with them and they've got something going on with you and you're just sitting there with your arms crossed, you're giving them the stare of death. Not worshiping God. You're not going to take anything in. Nothing's going to happen. You're just going to come and there's going to be songs sung and there's going to be a word spoken. God's word's going to go forth, but it's going to hit rock hard soil. Because the problem isn't how the pastor delivered the message, the problem isn't the worship team, the problem's our heart. The problem is we need to get real with God and say, look, I, I need to go be reconciled to my brother. I need to go get that squared away. And then you can come and leave your gift before the altar of grace. And just say, Lord, here it is, man. I'm free to give now. A thousand years before this time, Psalmist David said, If I regard wickedness in my heart, Psalm 66 says, The Lord does not hear. Isaiah said it this way. He said, My sins have hidden my heart so that God does not hear my prayers. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? For behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. You see, he's looking at the heart. He's saying, look, you can bring me all kinds of goodies. You can give until it hurts. But if your heart's not right, you're going to walk away unchanged, and God wants us to be changed. Roman law provided at that time that the plaintiff could bring the accused to him and, and face him basically as a guilty party. But that rarely resolved anything. It just meant that somebody got what they wanted. And God's saying, look, once you take it to the righteous judge, who wants you both to change? There's only one person that's qualified in the entire universe to be the judge, the officer, and to implement the penalty for the crime if necessary, and that's the Lord himself. And we toss around that phrase, you know, but for God's grace go I. It's really true, isn't it? And here's how I know that. You, you see, you may not be struggling with the same sin that someone else. You, maybe you've got a problem with somebody. And their sin's very obvious. You may not have their sin, you may not have their problem, but you definitely have your problems. We all do. There's not a perfect person in here. Not one. I'll be the first one to get in line, in the not perfect line. And so the Lord's saying to us, look, get your heart right. So what Jesus is teaching is the absolute perfect standards of God are met by an absolute relationship with the one who meets that perfect standard, and that's Jesus.
if we do that, there is nothing that can't be fixed. Nothing. My assisting pastor at Calvary Chapel Running Springs, his daughter ended up having a child with, and this is before they were in ministry, actually before they were both saved. And ultimately got involved in all kinds of just drugs and children out of just this horrific, horrible situation. And these two men literally, on two occasions, attempted to beat each other to death. And then they met Jesus. And then they started serving Jesus together. And the Lord not only redeemed their relationship, they ended up doing Christmas and stuff together. It's like only God can do that kind of stuff. Amen? That's a heart change thing. That's not a circumstance. Because you know what? The, the, all the consequences of the drug use and the consequences of the children and all this stuff, those still existed. But what changed was the heart. And those two men were reconciled. And to this day, they love each other. Jesus speaking, Assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and whoever comes to me, I will bring them in, that they may have life, that they might have it abundantly. That's what the Lord wants. I'm bringing the worship team back up. Bring the prayer team forward. And maybe you've been carrying around some stuff. Or just some things that, man, I don't even know how I got there. It's kind of like when you put a flashlight down your shower drain. Isn't that a frightening thing? You're in the shower, you're getting clean, you think you're clean, and then you look in the drain, you realize all that gunk had to go somewhere. That's kind of the way our lives are. We look clean on the outside, and you find out we just kind of moved the gunk. It went somewhere else, it actually didn't disappear. The Lord wants that gunk to disappear. And so we're going to worship for a little bit, the prayer team's going to come forward. Maybe you got some hard thing. Maybe you came in tonight and you, you got something you really just need to square away with Jesus. It's okay. We all do. The Lord wants to take that. And he wants to transform it. He wants to give you a new heart. He wants to set you free. If you don't know him, that's the first step. That's what has to happen to get you on that road. And so tonight... Remember that like all other things, murder begins in the heart and it starts as a little bit of anger or hatred. If you want to be freed, get rid of the little stuff so it doesn't turn into big stuff. We let him have the little things, we have a much better likelihood that we're not going to have to deal with the big things. And that's what God wants. He, he wants us to walk in that freedom, in that newness of life doesn't want us hating on anybody or anyone, anything, for any reason. He wants us walking in the light of his marvelous grace. Amen? Amen.